Will you join me with a word of prayer? Father, we want to thank you again for this opportunity to come before you to hear your word proclaimed and to invite your Holy Spirit to speak into our hearts, to bring nourishment to our spirit, to bring love for one another and for you. And uh, Father, we yield our attention to you now and we invite you to uh, address us and to speak to us by your Holy Spirit in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. This uh, last month, actually almost exactly a month ago, March 9th, um, a team of scientists and adventurers uh, announced that they had finally located the remains of Ernest Shackleton's ship, the Endurance, at the bottom of the Weddell Sea in Antarctica. And the team made this discovery using submersibles and undersea drones. And maybe you saw this stunning pictures of especially the stern of the ship in this icy, clear, cold water. Uh, in it was re remarkably good condition, but at 10,000 feet. The story about the Endurance was that they were on an Antarctic ex exploration, and they left a, an island off of the coast of Argentina the, called South Georgia Island, and their plan was to find a base station on the shore of the Weddell Sea, and from there, Ernest Shackleton and several others were going to go overland coming out uh, below New Zealand where somebody else had stationed fuel and food supplies along the way. And so on December 5th, 1914, uh, the Endurance left South Georgia Island carrying 27 um, men, uh, plus one stowaway, um, 69 dogs, and one Tomcat erroneously named Mrs. Chippy. And they headed out for uh, the Antarctic's South or Antarctic's Weddell Sea. Um, what, what happened, however, was the Endurance was making its way through the pack ice, and they were within one day's sail of their destination where they were going to plant this, uh, this shore headquarters. And they had plotted along for several weeks, but within that one day, they got trapped in the sea ice. A northerly gale had forced the pack ice up against the ship and had pinned it um, to the shoreline, one of the, the uh, crewmen by the name of uh, Thomas Ord Leeds said it was frozen like an almond in the middle of a chocolate bar. So even though they were within one day of getting to where they wanted to be, the, the pack ice started to drift them away from their destination, pushing them further and further away, and there was nothing they could do except to just prepare to settle out for the winter in the middle of the pack ice. Eventually, Long story short, the ship gets crushed by the pack ice and sinks, and that's the ship that they found just last month. But the men are now on the flowing pack ice, getting carried further and further away until they finally get to the edge of the pack ice, and now they're forced onto their um, lifeboats, and they row for 36 hours until they reach Elephant Island. It was the first time that they had touched shore in 497 days. So they rest for nine days, and then Shackleton and Captain Worsley and four others set out in one of the lifeboats, the James Caird, and they set out from Elephant Island on an 800-mile cross-ocean trip to try to land on South Georgia Island. It was an incredible story. So the Endurance was a great name for the ship. It was a great name for the, this, this epic trip. It was a great name for the, the crew. It was a great name for the incredible navigation skills that it took to hit South Georgia Island 800 miles away. It's a great name for a book. 
written in 1959 by uh, Alfred Lansing. By the way, when he wrote that book in 1959, there were still a lot of the crewmen alive to, who could tell him about the story. At any rate, it's also a great example of pull motivation. So there's this theory in motivation that says that you are either pushed or pulled um, to be driven to something. So you have this, it's two forms of motivation, push and pull. So push motivation is generally that, that some perceived pain in your life pushes you to act in a certain way. You, you're pushing yourself either away from the current pain or the anticipated pain, and uh, you, that pain causes you to push away. That's the motivation. So if you're overweight, you feel bad about yourself. If you're stressed and suffering, if you um, if you're in a bad relationship or in a bad job, you know, every day is a reminder of the pain that you feel. You don't have to imagine what's motivating you. You're confronted with it every single day. And this pain pushes you away. You push to recoil from the pain. And of course, once the pain is removed or the perception of the pain, generally the motivation goes with it. The other kind of motivation is called pull motivation. And pull motivation is where you're tapping in to a deep desire to achieve something, a, a desire to bring yourself closer to a desired goal. And so you, because you have this anticipation, you will push, a, excuse me, you will be pulled towards that, uh, that objective, that goal, in spite of the pain. It's, it's about a meaningful quest. It's about uh, trying to do something that's, tr that's truly remarkable, coming closer to the object of your quest. Now, I mention all that because before us today is probably the world's, the universe, all time's greatest example of pull motivation. So we want to look at that, and I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 9, verse 51. <coughs> Luke 9, 51. <coughs> now, we've spent months talking about the Apostle Paul and how he was on his way to the temple to worship. He wanted to bring these Gentiles with him to bring this offering to the Jerusalem church. His main motivation there was to try to create harmony between the church's Jewish and Gentile population. But all along the way, on his road to Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit has warned him that when he gets there, he should expect to be treat, treated harshly, to be rejected, to be arrested, and to fall into the hands of the Gentiles. And the Spirit made that very clear that imprisonment and persecution were what waited for him there. But he says in Acts 21.13, he says, I'm ready not only to uh, be bound, but also to die for the name of the Lord Jesus. And so even though he, he, he's told that there's, there's pain awaiting him, there's hardships, he is pulled to Jerusalem because of this great motivation. And of course, he gets to Jerusalem, things go south rather quickly, a riot ensues. The Romans have to break up the riot and thereby save Paul's life, or the Jews would have, would have murdered him. But now, for the rest of the story of Acts, Ro Paul will be under Roman arrest, and eventually Paul will be executed by the Romans. But I'd like to pause here, since we're really not talking about Paul's road to Jerusalem. We're talking about Jesus' road to Jerusalem. But I've noted some remarkable similarities between Paul's epic road to Jerusalem and Jesus's. Like Jesus, Paul travels to Jerusalem with a group of disciples. Like Jesus, Paul had opposition from the Jews who plotted against his life. 
like Jesus, Paul received three successive predictions of coming sufferings that would await for him in Jerusalem and being handed over to the Gentiles. Uh, fourth, like Jesus, Paul had followers who tried to discourage him from going to Jerusalem and reminded him of the faith that waited him there. Fifth, like Jesus, Paul declared his readiness to lay down his life. Uh, like Jesus, Paul was determined to complete his ministry and not to be deflected from it. Like Jesus, Paul um, expressed his complete abandonment to the will of God. Like Jesus, Paul came to Jerusalem to give something. Like Jesus, Paul was unjustly arrested on the base of false accusations. Like Jesus, Paul was arrested, arrested alone. None of his followers, his disciples, were arrested with him. Like Jesus, Paul heard the mob crying out, away with him. Like Jesus, a Roman officer was handling his case, and he didn't know his true identity. Uh, like Jesus, Paul is associated with terrorists by a Roman official. Like Jesus, Paul is assigned to be flogged for a confession uh, when he was guilty of no crime. Isn't that remarkable, all those similarities of their road, their different epic roads to Jerusalem? Now, as, as you've just been made aware of, as the kids march through our church, today's Palm Sunday. And, of course, we are remembering that Palm Sunday is the day in which Jesus declares himself to be Israel's Messiah. He enters into Jerusalem with great fanfare. And the people are tearing down branches from the palm trees. They're, they're, they're using their coats and their cloaks, and they're waving them in the air. There's this great celebration that begins now Holy Week. Unfortunately, um, if this isn't your first Holy Week, you're also aware that while this begins with great exuberation, it ends with Jesus being executed and, and rejected. But what I want to talk about today, this particular Palm Sunday, actually takes place several months before Palm Sunday. In the section that we're looking at today, um, there's, there, this is a great example of endurance, of pull motivation, of determination, of commitment, of perseverance. Now, there's a change which has taken place in Jesus' ministry in chapter 9 of Luke. Um, Jesus announces that he has come specifically for a reason. He's come to live a righteous life, to fulfill the re requirements of the law. But more importantly, he has come to sacrifice his life for others. And now, these months before the cross, he's, he's fully cognizant of it, and he's telling his disciples. And that brings us to the text that's before you today. In Luke 9:51, as the days drew near for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. So Jesus is fully aware, as Paul was fully aware, going to Jerusalem is not going to be a party. It's going to mean, uh, it's going to mean harshness. It's going to mean arrest. It's going to mean, um, for Jesus, it's going to mean crucifixion. But Jesus is aware of that. He's fully aware of what going to Jerusalem is going to. Uh, cost him. And he knows when he gets there, it involves denial, it involves betrayal, it involves misuse, it involves being an innocent victim and yet treated incredibly harshly. But you know what? Jesus is drawn beyond that harshness. He's fully aware of that, but he's, he's fixed on the distant object that his life's work. He's looking beyond the crucifixion. He's looking to the ascension when he goes to heaven. He's looking towards the goal that lays beyond the pain, and so he sets his face, he sets himself resolutely to pursue that, even though he knows 
Pain is in the offering, and so he is pull-motivated. It is a hard row ahead of him, but he determines that the goal is worth the effort. Hebrews chapter 2, verse, excuse me, chapter 12, verse 2 says, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the, ch- the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So in spite of the challenges, in spite of the heartaches, in spite of the rejection, in spite of the suffering, the disappointments, in spite of the the lure that it would be to do nothing, to sit back and take it easy, Jesus is resolutely determined to go to Jerusalem. He sets his face towards Jerusalem. This is an obvious reference to Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6. Isaiah, speaking of Jesus, He says, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. Now, I want you to leave your finger here in Luke Luke chapter 9, because we're going to come right back here. But jump ahead to chapter 19, Luke 19, 37. Again, Jesus has taken this mission is with this growing intensity to go to Jerusalem. And he's, he's aware what it's going to cost him, but he's intent not only for his own sake and fulfilling the mission that's before him, but he's also teaching his disciples what discipleship is all about. So he's teaching them the true nature of what it means to be a Messiah, but he's also teaching them the true nature of what it means to be a disciple. To be a disciple means first that you believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the the promised Messiah of Israel, that he's the Son of God. But secondly, to be a disciple also means that you have a willingness to lay down your life, to die to self, to take up your cross daily and follow Jesus, that picking up the cross is the way to the crown. Now, you know that. And those of you who are Christians, and I know most of you, you do honestly believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But here's my question. Are you as willing today as you once were to lay down your life and pick up your cross to follow Jesus. See, after a while of being a Christian, you get kind of comfortable with it. And you start pursuing life's comforts in times of ease. And after a while, sometimes it is the lure of life's pleasures and comforts that we pursue. And even though I'm fully confident that when you became a Christian, you were fully willing to lay down your life, to pick up your cross, and to follow Jesus, the question that I'm putting before you is, are you still? So Luke describes this arrival of Jesus in Jerusalem. It's the beginning of the Holy Week. Luke 19, 37, as he's drawing near at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice, for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is he, the king, who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. You know, I have no doubt that at this point in the minds of the disciples, they're thinking back to how he is fulfilling Zechariah's prophecy. And Zechariah in Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Lo, your king comes to you, triumphant and victorious is he humble and riding on an ass, on a colt, the foal of an ass. 
I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall command peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. So the disciples are seeing Jesus proclaiming himself as a Messiah, and in their minds, they're looking back to the prophecy from Zechariah, and they're thinking that this Messiah is going to establish himself as a political king, and that he's going to bring the, the, the kingdom of the world with Jerusalem as its capital, and they will have part in that. And you've got to be wondering, as the disciples are, are flinging their, their palm branches in their coats and shouting hosannas and praise to, to, to the, the Lord, you've you got to be wondering, how is Jesus going to accomplish this? I would be wondering, is he going to, is he going to create a whip up the enthusiastic crowds, and are they going to storm the, the Antonian fortress and overcome the Romans? Or is Jesus going to do it in a remarkable way? Is he going to call down fire and brimstone to consume God's enemies? And if he's going to create this violence, which ultimately leads to the establishment of his kingdom, wouldn't you be wondering how many of his followers are going to die in the struggle? The tension of the moment must have been truly you know, phenomenal. Now, the disciples are trying to understand what it means, the implication of this kingship of Jesus. And their, their thinking is flawed, but it's not wrong. You know, Jesus is the king of Israel, and he is going to establish a kingdom. He's inaugurating one that will bring peace to all nations, that will reign from sea to sea but not now and not the kind of kingdom that they imagine it's going to be. Okay, now turn back where you were in Luke chapter 9, but let's turn all the way back to verse 22. Back in Luke 9, again, Jesus is preparing at this point to set out for Jerusalem, and he's preparing his disciples for what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so his, his announcement here about his messiahship, he's declaring to them what it means to be the messiah and that it's not going to be as you expect it to be. It's not the event that they are anticipating. 9.22, Jesus says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and killed on the third day and be raised. And we'll jump, we'll come back to verse 23 in a minute. Verse 44, <laughs> he told them, let these words sink into your ears, for the Son of Man is to be delivered into their hands. Verse 45, they didn't understand this, and it was concealed from them that they should not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him anything about it. So they're understanding of this journey that Jesus is making to Jerusalem is flawed. They, they saw him as a king who was coming to take control, and in a sense he was, but he was coming to be victorious over, over Satan and over sin and over death and over the enemies of righteousness. And it meant to accomplish that, it meant that he would have to suffer and die, and that his kingdom would be established, but in fact it would, been, it would be established thousands of years past the moment at hand. It's their misunderstanding of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem that ultimately results in this massive misunderstanding of what it means to be a disciple. 
And that's why it's important for us to see, because that's the question before us now. Now that this is all passed, we fully understand the, the meaning of the triumphal entry. I don't think we understand so well what it means to be a disciple. So here's what it meant for Jesus. Luke 13, 33. I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the following day, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Jerusalem means one thing for Jesus, certain death. And it's not going to be a, a quick, heroic death either. He's under no illusion that this is going to be a painless exit. Luke 18, 31. Behold, we're going to Jerusalem, and everything that's written of the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles. He will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. They will scourge him and kill him. When Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, he set his face to die. Remember, when you think about Jesus' resolution to die, remember that he, was, he had a nature like ours. He, he recoiled from pain. He was pushing away from pain. He didn't look forward to this kind of abuse. Jesus would have enjoyed, as a man, he would have enjoyed the idea of, of being married and having kids and having grandkids. And he would have enjoyed the esteem of, of the community that he lived in. And Jesus had a family. He had a mother and brothers and sisters. He didn't want to leave them. Jesus had places in the wilderness that he enjoyed going to. So he had to renounce all of those things and set his face towards a whipping and a beating and spitting and mocking and crucifixion. That would not have been easy for him as a man. And beyond that, something that we cannot even possibly imagine that he fully understood is what it would mean to be the object of judged sin, to be the object of God's wrath. I mean, we can understand, because we are fully human, we can understand recoiling from pain. And we can understand, because we don't want to die either, we don't want to give up family, kids, and grandkids. And we enjoy the respect and esteem of our peers and our community. We, we want those things too, and so we can imagine how Jesus would recoil from that pain, but we can't imagine what it meant for him to be the object of God's wrath, to feel the weight of the sins of, of all people, to anticipate the spiritual dimension of, of the judgment against sin, the wrath of God. Our imagination can only begin to inform us how much Jesus loved us. Greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. So if we were to look at Jesus' death merely as an accident of time, merely an analysis that he was betrayed by a friend, that he was the envy of the Sanhedrin, that the Romans misunderstood if we were just going to see the death of Jesus as the consequence of nails in the hands on a cross or a spear in the side or the loss of blood, we might come to the conclusion that Jesus is just the involuntary victim of things out of his control. And if that were the case, 
if it's just that he got caught up in history, now God has to come up with plan B. That God has to now work something good out of something terrible. That God has to now create some virtue out of necessity. But once you read from Luke 9.51 that this was Jesus' resolute plan all along, then all of these thoughts just vanished. Jesus was not accidentally entangled in the web of injustice. These saving benefits for sinners were always in God's mind. This was his God's eternal plan. This was what God was working through. It is not an afterthought. God planned it all out of his infinite love for sinners who, like you, would shake your fist at God and say, I will not let this man reign over me. But Jesus set his face to fulfill his mission, and he reminds us, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. The surprise about Jesus Messiah being the Messiah, that he came to live a sacrificial life, dying service, that he does come again in great glory, but the glory only comes after the cross. And the surprise about discipleship is that it demands from us a life of sacrificial dying, of taking up our cross before we can reign with Christ in glory. So we have to learn something that, in a sense, Jesus' epic road to Jerusalem is also our road to Jerusalem. And if Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem to die, we must set our face to follow him and die also. So we might be tempted to reason that just the opposite is true, and many people will tell you the opposite is true, that, that since Jesus has suffered so much in our place, therefore we are to be free from suffering, and we're to be free from discomfort and from the crises of life and from sickness and sorrow. We might be tempted to think that because Jesus suffered that I then don't have to suffer, that I can live with great comfort, that because he bore so much abuse, then I can live with great esteem, that he gave up the treasures of heaven so that I could live in the treasures on earth, that he gave up the kingdom of heaven and he paid for my entrance so that I can now live with the abundance of earthly privileges. You see, that's not biblical reasoning. That goes very much against the very clear teaching of Scripture. Now, Luke 9.23, that's the verse that I skipped over earlier. If any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. John Piper said, when Jesus set his face to walk the road of Calvary, he was not merely taking our place. He was setting a pattern. He is substitute and pace setter. If we seek to secure our life through surrounding ourselves with luxury in the face of human need, we will lose our lives. We can save our life only if we follow Christ on the road to Calvary. Jesus died to save us from the power and punishment of sin, not from the suffering and sacrifices of simplicity for love's sake. This week I stumbled across uh, Steve's job, Steve Jobs' now famous 2005 commencement speech to Stanford, 
And this is what he said. Remember, Steve Jobs has just discovered that he has terminal pancreatic cancer at this point. And he writes, or he says, <clears throat> remembering that I'll be dead soon is the most important tool I've ever encountered to help me make the big choices in life. Because almost everything, all external expectations, all pride, all fear of embarrassment or failure, these things just fall away in the face of death, leaving only what is truly important. Remembering that you are going to die is the best way I know to avoid the trap of thinking you have something to lose. You're already naked. There's no reason not to follow your heart. Charles Spurgeon said, our Lord was tempted to turn aside from this purpose. First, by the offers of the world. The populace wanted to take him by force and make him king. He was at times so popular among the multitudes that the Pharisees didn't dare seize him for they feared the people. When he rode through the streets of Jerusalem in triumph, that's what we're celebrating today, it appeared as if all the inhabitants of the city were for a while at least upon his side. They were, it is true, laboring under a great mistake. They supposed that he was about to set up a temporal sovereignty. And if he would do that and drive away their Roman conquerors, they would gladly follow him. But when they perceived that he had no such designs, but that his kingdom was purely spiritual and not of this world, that he cared nothing for the honor of men, but only sought to make them holy, they changed their note and cried, crucify him, crucify him. This is the part that arrested me as I read this, continuing from Spurgeon. Yet many a man possessed by a high resolve, has been turned aside from this purpose by the bauble of earthly honor. He might have become great in his master's esteem, but he chose to receive a worldly title and wear a ribbon. He might have been a blessing to his fellow men, but he was dazzled by the glitter of a coronet so that he left the path of usefulness to proceed the road of earthly fame. What a tragic conclusion if that's what your life was about. That you gave up being useful to the kingdom so that you could wear an earthly title and wear a ribbon. Reading on, there have been hundreds and thousands of cases in which men's character appeared to be opening like a rose, but the worm of wealth was gnawing at the root, and ere the rose could fully expand, the flood and flood the air with its perfume, it had been destroyed. But Christ, when he was taken by Satan to an exceedingly high mountain and set upon a place where he could see all the kingdoms of the earth in a moment of time and had the offer of all of these if he would fall down and worship the power of evil was not to be turned aside from his steadfastness. His zeal was too fervent. His purpose was too strong. His compassion for his people was too intense for him to yield to the tempter. Had he not voluntarily left the thrones and royalties of heaven and stripped himself of the glorious arrays in which he had worn with his father's courts to come down to be a carpenter's son? So who could bribe him to turn from his purpose? No one, for he had set his face like flint to put off all thought of seeking earthly honor and to endure the utmost depths of shame that he might redeem his people from the wrath to come. Ernest Shackleton did make it to South Georgia Island, that 800-mile trip. He dropped off six of his men there at the shore of the island, made a 36-hour crossing over the mountain range. Then um, he went back to save those six men and ultimately the 22 men that he left on 
Elephant Island. The men on Elephant Island had to wait 128 days for Shackleton to return to them. Frank Wilde, who was left in charge by Shackleton, every morning would tell the, the crew, lash up and stow your belongings. The boss may come today. His companions would grow increasingly dispirited and doubtful. Uh, Macklin recorded that eagerly on the lookout for the relief ship, some of the party have quite given up hope of, of her coming. Then 128 days after dropping them off, he, he did rescue them, and every one of the crew of Endurance uh, was safe and alive. So it's an amazing story. It's an amazing story of pull, motivation. It's appropriately named Endurance. The ship appropriately named Endurance, the heroic life-saving effort, the, the book, the man. But as I read this, I wonder, what a difference would happen in our church if one person like this guy would to remind us daily, the boss may come today. Lash up your belongings. Get ready. The boss may come today. I wonder, have we stopped looking? Have we given up hope? We come to church, and I've told you many times that the purpose of the church is to praise God and to um, empower the saints to live lives of radical love for each other and love for the world. And if we were to praise our Lord Jesus from our heart, if we were to really live a life of love for one another, if we would just abandon this pursuit of esteem, of luxury, of retaliation to those who've done us wrong, we would be the most influential, compelling invitations to Jesus Christ. If Christ set his face to go to Jerusalem, ought we also not set our faces against the allurements of riches and honors and retaliation so that we could follow the King of Kings on the road to Calvary? One last thought. This Palm Sunday parade, you're all very much aware it was very brief. It took only hours, and it was all over. And people's hearts quickly turned against him. But did it ever occur to you that it is a preview, that it's a picture of the heavenly Palm Sunday to come? There's, there's a, an account in uh, Revelation chapter 9, excuse me, chapter 7, verse 9, that is a picture of the ultimate Palm Sunday, the heavenly Palm Sunday in the age to come. I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no man could number, from every tribe, every nation, and peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits upon the throne, and to the Lamb. Let's pray. I ask simply, Father, that you would give us an eternal perspective, not just on Palm Sunday 2,000 years ago, but an eternal perspective of our lives. How pathetic if we who once started out this road to Jerusalem with our faces set that whatever hardship would come along, we would gladly endure it. 
for the sake of Christ. That those who have welcomed you as Lord and Savior would then turn away to pursue comfort and riches and honors. I am terrified of the prospects that I could have been something significant for the kingdom, but I traded it to wear a ribbon and a title. Oh, Father God, I pray, do your work in the hearts of each one here today and help us to reaffirm, to be resolute, to be pull-motivated to the goal which lies beyond. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.